Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. This week, we're featuring two politicians who might be said to have the X factor and are certainly capturing imaginations on the global stage. In a few moments, I'll be speaking to Laura Marlowe about French President Emmanuel Macron's big address to deputies and senators at the Chateau de Versailles yesterday. Lara will be telling us why she thinks Macron's speech, examined in the cold light of day, had more substance to it than perhaps initially seemed to be the case. But first, Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is in Dublin today, Tuesday, for meetings with the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar and the President Michael D. Higgins before he heads off to the G20 summit in Germany later this week. Canadian and Irish citizens both want to leave to our children and grandchildren a better world than the one we inherited from our parents. A cleaner, more prosperous world. One where I'm very pleased to be joined by Jared Lindsom, a freelance journalist based in Toronto, who has written a fascinating piece about Justin Trudeau for the current edition of Politico magazine. Jared, you put forward a very interesting view in, in your piece in Politico that Justin Trudeau has probably one man above any other to thank for the current very high standing he enjoys on the double stage. Who is that man? Yeah, uh, ironically, it's Donald Trump. Um, And and that's largely because when Trudeau entered office, uh, the son of a former prime minister with very little political experience, obviously there was a lot of criticism and questions uh, about his his relevant uh, experience and whether or not he, he had what it took to be prime minister, uh, Trump really put him to the test. Uh, it was a sink or swim situation. And by and large, most Canadians agree that he's swimming quite well, uh, at least for the time being. Um, it was surprising to me to read in, in your piece, really, that, that the view that he's he hadn't um, been doing terribly well um, prior to Trump's election. So if we go back to 2015, when uh, Trudeau mm-hmm. was elected, it got quite a lot of international attention because he was the son yes. of Pierre Trudeau and so on. And um, and then uh, I suppose we didn't hear that much more about him until until Trump was elected. But you were saying he, things weren't necessarily going terribly well for him um, in the first year in his first year in office. Um, I, I wouldn't say they were they were going poorly. Um, I would say more so that he hadn't yet silenced the criticism that he wasn't ready for the job. A, a lot of he he had a lot of accomplishments in that first year, um, but none of them were were anything major. Uh, it was very much uh, just sort of the the wheels of government rotating properly sort of stuff. It wasn't anything uh, major uh, aside from the fact that he elected a uh, a gender neutral uh, cabinet which was the first in Canada's history, there's a lot of moments like that where he made headlines, but he was still known as sort of the selfie prime minister, um, the social media prime minister, the the criticisms about him being a bit of a lightweight, about him being more of a pretty boy than an actual politician who could be taken seriously on the global stage. That criticism uh, still persisted, even though his fans were still very much behind him. Um, the rest of the world hadn't really taken him seriously yet, and nor had his uh, critics really uh, been silenced in that regard because he hadn't proven himself yet. There was that one incident which did make the news over here where he manhandled somebody in Parliament, isn't that right? Yes, that was that was an interesting situation. You don't see that every day. Um, it's kind of hard what to make of that because, of course, immediately the uh, opposition party was up in arms that there was some sort of uh, major physical assault of a prime minister to a cabinet or to an MP. Um, you know, then the Liberal Party was saying that that's an exaggeration, and it became a, a big mess very quickly, and it made international headlines, as you said. 
Um, it was kind of hard to figure out how serious of a situation it was because there wasn't really very much of a precedent there. Um, but it was concerning and it did add to that argument that perhaps he wasn't ready. He didn't have the sort of maturity um, that we would hope for in, in a prime minister and potentially a world leader. Now, before we come back to the Trump presidency and the significance that has had for Trudeau's own um, um, standing or, or, or his own performance in office, um, those of us of a certain age, we all we remember Pierre Trudeau, his father, when he was prime minister. But maybe can you remind people what kind of um, prime minister he was and the parallels between his term in office and, and what we're seeing now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, he was uh, more of a celebrity, at least at first, than he was a prime minister. Um, there would be lineups around the corner when any country he would visit for people uh, hoping to get a glimpse of the prime minister, um, sort of the equivalent of lining up for a selfie today in, in any country uh, the younger Trudeau lands in. Uh, he's the talk of Davos. He's the front page of uh, a lot of uh, international publications whenever there's one of these large summits and meetings. This is his father, but also uh, Justin as well. Uh, there's a lot of a, a celebrity sort of following. Um, it didn't hurt that he started off in office as a uh, single and uh, dating celebrities at the time. Um, so there's a lot of uh, tabloid fodder as well. Uh, John Lennon actually uh, said that if all politicians were like Mr. Trudeau, there would be world peace. Uh, he was very much uh, a man of his era in, in the late 60s and early 70s uh, as a celebrity. And then later on, uh, he continued. He was prime minister for 15 years. And uh, like his son, it started off as, you know, the good looking guy who was on the cover of the magazines, who women were chasing down the streets, um, who, you know, the tabloids were obsessed with. But but it was hard to see a lot of political substance, a lot of uh, world leader potential in, in that sort of environment. Um, and it took some time for the elder Trudeau to really establish himself as the political force that he's now remembered as. And uh, so then we, we come back to, so he left office in 1984. Um, there was a long period. Mm -hmm. I, I think in your, your article, you're, you're maybe a little too self-deprecating about how little, um, there are some comments <laughs> in it about how little attention is paid to Canada. We probably um, um, would pay some attention, but generally speaking, fairly low-key run of prime ministers compared to um, the prime minister you have now, who is uh, really a household name around the world. Trump's election, though, really did kind of set up a contrast, didn't it, between the US president and the Canadian president, because he's he's almost the anti-Trump, isn't he? He's, he differs in every respect, in every policy, really, from Donald Trump. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, there's there's so many different ways um, in which he, he sort of acts as a foil or they're, they're foils to each other. I mean, even just in terms of age and appearance, but beyond that, uh, Trudeau elected a, uh, he appointed, sorry, a uh, gender neutral cabinet, which uh, was the first in Canada's history, as I mentioned. Uh, Trump, not quite uh, as gender friendly uh, or as, as female friendly, uh, at least not uh, his reputation. Um, beyond that, uh, when Trudeau, sorry, when Trump uh, began his Muslim ban, Trudeau tweeted that uh, all are welcome in Canada. Um, there's a matter of the environment, free trade, um, immigration. Uh, there's, there's very little in, in terms of policy that they actually align on, um, aside from the, the mutual goal of creating jobs and wealth within North America. But beyond that, there's, there's very little that they see eye to eye on, which puts them in a difficult position because... Um, historically, the Canada-U.S. relationship has been uh, the most important for both countries and the most peaceful 
um, out of any two uh, bordering countries in the world. So it's it's a difficult and interesting time for sure. And this poses huge challenges for Trudeau, doesn't it? Because on the one hand, every time he does something that contrasts his own uh, position with that of Trump, he, he looks good. But on the other hand, he has to maintain this relationship between the US and Canada that's so important. Yeah, and it's interesting. A recent poll of Canadians found that 78% do not approve of Donald Trump, which is not surprising. Um, But that means that Trudeau has to tread very carefully here because on the one hand, he needs the partnership. This is Canada's most important trading ally uh, and partner and uh, by by large margin. Um, On the other hand, Canadians aren't happy with the job the president's doing. So the prime minister has to both cozy up to Trump without appearing like he's cozying up to Trump. He needs to be uh, trusted and sort of a, a partner in a lot of upcoming negotiations, including uh, the NAFTA uh, renegotiation, the North American Free Trade Agreements. Uh, there's, there's a lot of situations coming up where the two are going to have to work together. Uh, and Trudeau, in public at least, he's gone out of his way to say good things about Trump to try and uh, help that relationship. He recently spent time with uh, Ivanka, took her to a Broadway show that was uh, Canadian-made. Um, so he's definitely trying to, to cozy up to the Trump family. The problem is that Canadians do not approve of the Trump family. Um, and if he appears that he's giving in to the sort of strong-arm po- uh, politics of Donald Trump, uh, the Canadians will think that he is that sort of weak uh, leader that they had originally thought that he might be when he was first elected. So there's a, there's a lot of uh, tightropes for him to walk uh, at the moment. Yes. In a way, it's the same dilemma, I think, that all of the U.S.'s Western allies face, isn't it? But it's writ large for Canada, isn't it? It's, it's the same for you, yes. only more so. Absolutely. Yeah, there's there's a lot on the line, and especially because the North American Free Trade Agreement is up for renegotiation. Uh, Canada's economy is so heavily tied into the United States and so much of our economy. Uh, uh, we're an export-based economy, and a huge percent of those exports are going straight across the border to the United States. Um, the deal that allows that to happen without any taxes or any issues relatively few taxes or issues, is the North American Free Trade Agreement. Uh, Trump campaigned on abolishing it and is currently, uh, we're set to renegotiate it. So a lot of Canadians are are a little bit nervous about what happens next. And and finally, Jared, as I mentioned, um, he's uh, in Dublin today and he met our our own new um, fresh-faced young, uh, good-looking Prime Minister, um, Leo Varadkar, who in some some, uh, respects has been um, in some media has been sort of re- referred to as the, the Irish Justin Trudeau. Um, one of the items on their agenda was free trade and uh, this uh, Canadian-EU free trade deal, which has yet to be ratified by all of the EU member states. It's very important for Ireland in particular in the context of Brexit that, uh, you know, these the, the, these trade lines, as many as possible, are, are open to other avenues around the world. How important is it to Canada to get this deal over the line and operational? Yeah, well, it's extraordinarily important uh, in part because of the NAFTA renegotiations coming up. Um, If Canada can come to the bargaining table saying, you know, should the U.S. decide to shut down NAFTA or create a a negative trade environment for Canada, there's an alternative market in the EU that we have access to. Uh, So it is definitely a bargaining chip for Canada going in to the upcoming NAFTA negotiations. On the other hand, it's also a sort of fail-safe for countries like Canada and Ireland that don't have as much financial and political power as neighboring countries like the UK and the US. But when those countries are going through a little bit of 
political changes when all of a sudden their borders are starting to close off, uh, when free trade isn't as free or as accessible. Uh, it's important for those countries that would typically get pushed around by their large and influential neighbors to start to band together and to open up channels that allow them to trade between each other um, so that they're less dependent on, on those neighbors. So um, I think it's an important deal for Ireland in the same way as an important deal for Canada because uh, as, as some countries around the world start to close off, it's important that the ones that remain open uh, get, get more open to each other. Okay, Jarrett. Well, listen, as I said, it's a really good piece on Politico, how how Trump made Justin Trudeau a global superstar. Uh, Jarrett, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. It was Franklin D. Roosevelt who created the first 100 days benchmark for new US presidents when he began his period in office in 1933 with a breathtaking set of reforms designed to end the Great Depression. Since then, all US presidents are judged, at least initially, on how much they achieve in their first 100 days in office. I don't know what yardstick the French apply when judging the performance of their new presidents, but Emmanuel Macron, just like FDR, seems determined to seize the moment and to waste no time in capitalising on the momentum and goodwill that comes with one's first days in office. To tell us more, Lara Marlow joins us from Paris. Um, Lara, Emmanuel Macron is halfway through his first 100 days, um, but unlike FDR, he had a parliamentary election to win after he was inaugurated. Um, But he has made quite a whirlwind start, hasn't he? Uh, yes. Uh, so far, the whirlwind has been mostly in foreign affairs. Uh, you'll remember he made his first big apparent appearance at the G7, uh, also the NATO summit. There's been an EU council meeting. And he he went to see Angela Merkel on the first day after after his election. So he's really concentrated on foreign affairs. He's been twice to Mali to see French troops there. And he's given a lot, obviously, lots of glossy photographs in magazines and, and, and it's getting attention. But he hadn't really turned his attention to domestic matters until he gave his uh, so-called State of the Union speech uh, yesterday in Versailles. So, but the, the, the re- reaction of the French so far is really one, one of expectation. I think people are more optimistic. The polls show that they're more optimistic, especially the business community. Um, there was a very interesting poll uh, yesterday, actually, on the whole question of authority, because as you know, Chris, people, some people are comparing Macron to a, to a king, uh, to a monarch. And uh, um, this poll shows that 86% of, of respondents said that France and I quote uh, the question in the poll, needs a real boss to make to put order in the country. That's 86% of the, of the country wants a real boss. Uh, 84% said that authority is a value that is too often criticized. So I think that Macron, by trying to show himself to be a strong, powerful ruler, uh, is very much uh, in the spirit of the times in France. And you mentioned there his um, uh, so-called State of the Union address yesterday to the Joint Houses of Parliament at the Chateau de Versailles. First of all, before we get into what he said on Monday in that address, how unusual is it for a French president to make that kind of address? It's very unusual. Um, Before Nicolas Sarkozy changed the law in 2008, uh, Napoleon Bonaparte was the last person to to have addressed the the two houses of the French Parliament at, at one time. Uh, the custom was that the president could write a message to uh, the National Assembly and the Senate, and then it would be read by the leaders of, of the Assembly and the Senate. 
but it, obviously it wasn't him speaking. Uh, Sarkozy only used it once uh, in 2009. He, he made a very wide-ranging speech uh, just before a cabinet reshuffle. And François Hollande used it once right after the Bataclan attacks, remember in November 2015, 130 people were killed. So this is only the third time in modern French history uh, that this has happened. And what did he have to say? <laughs> a lot. Uh, he talked nonstop for an hour and a half. It was a very wide-ranging speech. Uh, there, it wasn't terribly well received. The, the reviews that this morning tended to be say it was boring, it was too long. Uh, one editorial said that instead of being the, the roi soleil, the sun king, he was actually the the roi sommeil, the, the, the sleep king. Uh, but I've been rereading the 18 pages of the text today, having listened very close to it yesterday, of course. And um, there's actually a lot in it. it it's a sort of goldmine of concepts. Um, there's not a lot that's concrete because he's left that to his prime minister who's speaking uh, this afternoon. But he, the, the same words come up over and over again. And the, the words that... Uh, are, are repeated are meaning. He talks about the search for meaning, uh, which reminded me actually a lot of uh, President Michael D. Higgins, who also talks a lot about the, the search for meaning. He talks about confidence, the need for confidence uh, in people. And another word that comes up over and over and over is mandate. He talks about his popular mandate. The reason for this is that his legitimacy is questioned over and over uh, especially by the extreme left, uh, who boycotted his speech yesterday. Um, their line is, well, he only won 24% of the vote in the first round on April 23rd. And the, the first round, because they have a, a, a two-round system for the elections, is meant to be to show the true will of the people. In other words, people vote their heart's desire in the first round, and in the second round they vote for the lesser of evils. And the other thing is that even though he got 66%, that's pretty stunning, two-thirds majority in the second round of the presidential election, uh, if you count the blank votes um, and abstention and the uh, ballots that were counted as null because they were defaced or whatever, he only won uh, 44% of the registered votes. So there's this constant questioning of his legitimacy, and I have the feeling that Macron, by, by speaking in such an august place, the palace of Louis XIV, and um, by emphasizing over and over and over his mandate and the mandate of the parliament, uh, where, where, of course, he won an absolute majority, he was, he was trying to, in a way, silence uh, those critics. On, on a more concrete level, he also announced a lot of institutional reforms. Now, I don't think this is going to get the French public really excited, um, but they, these are measures that he had promised during his campaign and which he means to, to carry out, and he's going to, he says he's going to do all this within one year. Yeah, no, one one of the ones, Lara, that got a lot of publicity was the suggestion that he, um, the proposal that he would reduce the number of uh, deputies and senators by a third. Um, I presume that would be popular with the, I mean, generally... Uh, most electorates tend to like the idea of reducing the number of mm. politicians. Is that the case in France? Um, yes, I think it's in the abstract. Yes, people like the idea. But when it comes down to, you know, Joe Bloggs, my deputy from my uh, constituency, is going to lose his job because the, he's merging two or three constituencies, I think people will like it less if, if they lose elected officials who, who, who they like. 
Um, it's not clear uh, when this is actually going to happen. He said that if, if the parliament wouldn't vote it, and it, it takes a vote of both the, the National Assembly and the Senate to, to pass this, it would be a constitutional change. Uh, it's not clear to me when this will actually happen, presumably after Macron's five-year term is over. Um, when he has such a, such a strong majority, is he really going to want to sabotage his own majority. But the presumption is this will save a lot of money because uh, parliamentarians are expensive. They get big salaries and big allowances. And the other uh, thing that, em- that Macron emphasized at length was it will be more efficient. Uh, he said, we've got to stop this endless inflation of laws. He said, uh, you know, these laws aren't even, most of them aren't even carried out. They're not put into practice. And it's true that French politicians tend to think that if they pass a law, they're working, they're doing something positive. I remember Lionel Jospin, when he was a socialist prime minister, bragging that he had passed 254 laws. Um, and frankly, it's, it's not terribly exciting, and it just adds to this this deluge or this, this glut of, of laws in France, which nobody can master, nobody knows really what the law is anymore. And um, I interrupted you a moment ago, Lara. What, what else, what other specifics struck you um, as, as um, the kind of uh, important yesterday? Uh, he says he wants to in, increase proportional or, or introduce a measure of proportional representation. Uh, and this, again, is a response <clears throat> to those who question his legitimacy. The fact is that the National Front, the Front National, uh, has a, a, a good well, Marine Le Pen, if you count her presidential score, got 34% of the vote, and, and her, her public are very strong supporters. So it has somewhere between you know, 20 and 34% of, of the public follow the Front National, and yet um, they've, they've only got a, a small handful of deputies in the National Assembly, and that's because the system is rigged to keep them out. So Macron, by saying he's going to introduce pro- pro- proportional representation, will increase the number of deputies from the small parties like uh, the, the Front National and like um, Jean-Luc Mélenchon's France Insoumise, uh, France Unbowed. So this is also an answer to this charge of you're not legitimate. Um, and again, it's not clear when that proportional representation will take effect. Will we have to wait five years for the next parliamentary election or will he do it sooner? And do you think he's serious about a, a measure that would actually benefit the, the National Front electorally? I think so. I, I think he's a wise man. He studied a lot of philosophy, and he says that people feel that the, the, the institutions are not representative and that it's only fair to make them more representative of, of, of the actual public feeling. So, uh, yes, I think he's sincere. Um, it doesn't really threaten his hold on power because he's got... Basically, he has a, a grip on every facet of, of power in France now. He has the Élysée. Uh, he, he appointed the prime minister. He made sure that nobody in the government is too well-known or too powerful. They tend to be technocrats, a lot of them from, from the private sector, not even career politicians. There's nobody in the government who's going to say no to him. He has an absolute majority in the National Assembly, um, and, and there again, you know, he put his right-hand man, the secretary general of his En Marche movement, is the leader of the parliamentary group. And he, he picked as well the speaker of the National Assembly, François de Rougy, who 
a few people might remember as having been a, a candidate um, in the socialist primary for the presidency. So basically, he holds all the levers of power. I think he can afford to be generous and give a few crumbs to the National Front and and, uh, and bowed, which is what he's doing. And he has all of these things going for him. But yet, you, you say, was the, the general reaction to his address yesterday negative or was it only people, um, political opponents who, who criticised him? It was political opponents and the press. Uh, he's had... Difficult relations with the press, surprisingly enough. Uh, he doesn't trust journalists. He has one of his first moves, well, I don't know if it was he, uh, Macron himself who decided this, but right after he was elected, they would no longer let journalists into the courtyard of the Elysee Palace to cover people arriving and departing after seeing him. And this is something that, that journalists have been doing for the whole 21 years. I Well, I started working here 21 years ago. Journalists have always gone into the courtyard of the Elysee Palace. So there was a big outcry about this, and now it's kind of negotiated every time. And so that that's improved a bit. And then uh, Macron was going to Mali, and the Elysee started calling up the editors of various newspapers and, and media and saying, we would like you to send so-and-so. Uh, because he's an expert on defense or she knows a lot about Africa or whatever. And again, there was a huge outcry from the press saying, you know, the Elysee has no right whatsoever to choose which reporters we send on stories. Then he announces that he's going to cancel his Bastille Day interview. This is an institution that's been going for 40 years. It was established by Valérie Giscard d'Estaing. And uh, I think with one exception, there was one year when Sarkozy was having a hard time and he said he wasn't going to give the Bastille Day interview. But Macron said, no, he doesn't need to give a Bastille Day interview because he gave this big speech in Versailles yesterday. So that, too, has fallen by the wayside. The Elysee said that the reason he would not give a Bastille Day interview was because the question and answer format didn't lend itself to the complexity of his thoughts. And so this went down really, really badly. And there was actually a section in his speech in Versailles, which was, was anti, well, interpreted as being really anti-press yesterday. He talked about the constant search for scandal, the permanent violation of a presumption of innocence, <clears throat> this manhunt uh, where reputations are destroyed and where uh, recognition of, the innocence, of innocence takes months, even years, and, and it is reported less than a tenth than the initial accusations. He talked about a media frenzy. Uh, so his relations with the press are, are tense. Now, in as much as the press is not popular in France at the moment, just as it's not popular in, in the U.S. And, and a lot of other countries, um, maybe this isn't hurting him. But I think that if he wants, in the long run, if he wants to have um, an easier time of things, he's going to have to mend those poor relations with the media. I can't help um, thinking of some of the parallels there with, with uh, Donald Trump. Larry, you know, distrustful of the press, concerned about his own legitimacy and so on. Um, we're not looking at a, a, a sort of classier version of Donald Trump here, are we? No, I, I think to a certain extent he is, like Trump, a populist in the sense that he wants to speak to the people. He wants to be in direct contact with the people. He doesn't want the press as a sort of... Uh, a sieve or an intermediary uh, between him and the people. And certainly during the campaign, uh, he, 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 talked, he talks a lot about what people want. He tries to, to appeal to the, the, the common wisdom. I mean, that's his philosophy is that he's a servant of the people and so on. But I think any similarity 
stops there. I mean, how can you compare uh, Trump, who's, what, 70 years old, to Macron, who's 38, uh, Trump, who has absolutely been disgusting about in his his comments about women, women uh, most recently Mika Brzezinski just a few days ago. Uh, Macron is utterly respectful of women. He's appointed more, you know, he had 50% uh, women candidates for the National Assembly. Uh, he's, he's named more women min, cabinet ministers than, than any other president, I believe. Um, so his attitude towards women is totally different. His attitude towards ethnic minorities is totally different. Macron is very much a welcoming, embracing of ethnic diversity, whereas we know about Donald Trump's problems with, um, with blacks and especially Mexicans. Uh, I mean, I, I think there are very few similarities. But uh, as you know, Macron will be receiving Donald Trump on Bastille Day to celebrate the centenary of American intervention in the First World War. And once again, we will see them together. There is a sort of contest of wills there between them. You remember the, the famous handshake at the Indeed. NATO summit where it was, it was almost like hand wrestling between Macron and, and Trump. Uh, Ma- Macron is, is popular. Um, Trump's popularity is, is I, I believe, is fairly low at the moment. Um, and certainly on the world stage, Macron is admired. He's imitated uh, all over Europe now. People, politicians, young politicians are saying they want to be the new Emmanuel Macron. I don't know if anybody's saying he wants to be the new Donald Trump. Um, indeed, he could probably sue me for that question. Um, just one other thing I wanted to ask you about, Lara, before we before we wrapped. Um, his official portrait last week um, when, uh, drew a lot of comment. And again, it's probably told us something about the kind of presidency Macron envisages for himself. Can you tell us about that? Yes. Uh, Macron posed uh, in his office in the Élysée, contrary to François Hollande, who, who <laughs> stood at the very bottom of the garden as far from the palace as he could. Uh, Macron took the same pose that Barack Obama took for his official uh, portrait in 2009. And this is not the first time that Macron has imitated Barack Obama. He obviously admires Obama. Remember, Obama called him just before his election and said he was supporting for him, he was rooting for him. Uh, He also, uh, he he was leaning slightly back against the edge of of his uh, antique desk, sort of clutching the edge of the desk with, with, with his fingers. And um, the, the quote I liked the most about that was from uh, a former cabinet minister who said it, it had something in the far west about it. He was, it was as if Macron was saying, over my dead body. Uh, and he looked, he, his body is almost as a barrier, you know, between, between the office and then the outside world, because the window is wide open. And then you have the French tricolor on one side of him, and the European blue and gold banner on the other side of him. So it was significant that he had the European flag and not the two flags sort of stuck together as they had been in previous portraits, but really flanking him on both sides. Uh, he'd also chosen himself all of the accoutrements that, that appeared in the photograph. Uh, there was the, the golden clock, which is used for the Council of Ministers, for the cabinet meetings. That was beside him on the desk. Uh, as you remember, he said that he wants to be the master of clocks, and he always takes his time. He doesn't worry about making people wait. Uh, he does things in his own time. There were, he also chose three books uh, to set on the desk uh, from the prestigious Pleiad um, edition. 
Uh, he had D D General de Gaulle's memoirs. I, I believe he even found a passage in the book that he opened uh, to some significant passage. Uh, he very much admires General de Gaulle. In fact, a lot of people say he, he acts like he thinks he is General de Gaulle. Uh, and a book by André Gide, Les Nourritures Terrestres. And the other book was uh, Stendhal, uh, the, Le Rouge et Le Noir, which is about an ambitious young man who is in love with a much older woman. Uh, so you might see a parallel there as well. <laughs> Indeed. And so, Lara, what lies ahead then? What can we expect in the coming weeks and months? We've heard the vision yesterday from Macron. So when will the words uh, turn into action? The vision is very much there. And the challenge now, uh, as you say, Chris, is to translate that vision into action. Uh, Prime Minister Edouard Philippe is supposed to explain to us today how he's going to do that. I think that perhaps one of the reasons that Macron concentrated on institutional reform is that that is, that is relatively easy to carry through. It's popular. Nobody's going to oppose it. Uh, the harder part is, is uh, whipping the French economy into shape. We had the state auditor's report last week showing that, that um, François Hollande's administration actually spent 8 billion euro, that's 8,000 million euro more than they said they had. Uh, which is pretty horrific. And as a result, um, Macron is having to postpone a lot of his, his gifts to the French electorate, uh, things like getting rid of property tax for 80% of the population, things like um, lowering uh, social charges for employers, and also things like um, decreasing the wealth tax on, on very rich people. So those, those were promises that were made that he's not going to be able to keep. Uh, the other really big item coming up, and he didn't—he barely mentioned it yesterday in this hour and a half-long speech—is the labor reform. He he says he's got to reform the labor market if he's going to create jobs for those 10% of unemployed French people, and this is going to be the most unpopular measure because the far left uh, just really viscerally hates uh, any tinkering with the labor code. Now he's going to try to push it through this summer. By decree, uh, the question is, will the far left be able to muster enough troops into the streets uh, to create havoc and, and, and cause real problems for Macron? Or are they all going to be at the beach uh, and, and just give up and forget about it? And he's, he's been consulting the labor unions uh, very extensively. He's trying to win them over. Uh, if anybody can do it, it will be Emmanuel Macron. Okay, Lara, pleasure as always. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. That's it for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.